Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Historic Pinstripe Show. Again, my name is Brian, and I have been a diehard Yankees fan since I was around seven years old. Thanks again for listening to last week's episode on my first Yankee Stadium experience, which was June 13th, 2004. And thanks again for listening to any of the other episodes you have listened to as well. And feel free to go back and listen to any of them if you have not gotten to listen to them. Also, if you prefer Spotify as a podcast platform, we are now on we are now on Spotify. And you can just search Historic Pinstripes and you can follow us there as well. Again, the goal of this podcast is, as always, to preserve the rich history and tradition of the New York Yankees by discussing the greatest players and moments in Yankees history. Also, because I am not from the New York or Tri-State area, I may have a different perspective than those who are. Either way, I am still a huge Yankees fan, and I bleed Yankees pinstripes. So, let's get on with today's topic. The top five Yankees first baseman of all time and why. So I've decided to go to go. We've gone from t- top five managers to top five starting pitchers, top five relief pitchers and top five catchers. Now I'm going to top five first baseman. And the reason why I haven't been going in this order, if you haven't picked up on it yet, um, is because when you score a game, uh, the pitcher is is uh, they give you numbers in baseball when you and it's for it's the, the reason is for when you score the game or when like a manager or I don't, I'm not sure if it's the manager or the bench coach or whoever it is that scores the game. Sometimes a lot of times the media people will do that for their own records. But when they score the game and it's like a fly out and they want to know where where the batter flew out to, they put F wherever the position was because each position is numbered. So pitcher, for example, is one. Catcher is two. First base is three, second base is four, uh, third base is five, shortstop is six, and then there's seven, eight, nine in the outfield um, from left to to right. So that's basically how the order of how I'm going to do the top five. So let's get on with today's episode, the top five Yankees first baseman of all time and why. First up, the Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, well, as everyone knows, he, he was the pride of the Yankees. He was their first captain, and actually, from the time that Lou Gehrig um, stopped, had to retire um, because of you know ALS. Um, from the time that he retired until uh, Thurman Munson became the captain in 1976, I believe. Or I said maybe in 75. I think it was 76, though, somewhere around there. And once until then, there was no captain because they. That was the longest ten years. That was the longest amount of years that the Yankees had never had a captain because it was kind of in in uh, in honor of Lou Gehrig because they felt like they probably shouldn't have another captain after Lou. And it wouldn't surprise me, kind of in a similar way, if the same thing happens with Derek Jeter, if the Yankees don't want to have another captain after Derek Jeter, just kind of in his honor. Even though you know Jeter finished his career, you know on a much higher note, obviously, because, you know, um, you know, obviously with ALS and Gehrig, it was a very tragic way for him to end his career. At the same time, though, Lou Gehrig, being the classy guy that he was, he was, he was, he was the, he was, he epitomized the label, the pride of the Yankees. And, you know, obviously that's why they called him that. Um, so 
a little bit more about Lou Gehrig. He was born in 1903 in New York. Um, he went to Columbia University, but I don't believe he finished there. Um, but he did play baseball there. Um, he also he was actually a very private, quiet guy, um, much like you'd expect. I mean, he was um he was he was a. I think his parents were German immigrants, and he uh, he, he pretty much was thri- He thrived under the under the spotlight of the babe. The babe had all the spot had the, the all of the spotlight, and it seemed like Gehrig kind of relished being not having to be the guy, obviously, because Babe Ruth had cast a humongous shadow. However, I'm sure at times, you know, maybe he felt like he could, because Lou Gehrig. Babe Ruth was the best player of all time, but Lou Gehrig was he was right up there with with Willie Mays and uh, Babe Ruth and all those guys. I mean, they're all different in their own way. And you can even say you probably even some people might even argue that Willie Mays was better, Ted Williams was better. However, I believe that Babe Ruth was the best player of all time just because he could have been a Hall of Fame pitcher, and in addition to being a Hall of Fame uh, Hall of Fame outfielder or Hall of Fame hitter. Moving on, um, one of the things that Lou Gehrig did did uh, do that I, Babe Ruth actually did not do um, was that Lou Gehrig was the third player to hit four home runs in a game. In fact, the only two guys to do that before him was second baseman Bobby Lowe, who played for the Boston Bean Eaters, and um, th- they became the Boston Braves later on, who are now, of course, the Atlanta Braves. And that was in 1894 when Bobby Lowe did it. And also... First baseman Ed Delahante, or Delahante, uh, from the Philadelphia Phillies in 1896. Um, he was a Hall of Famer. He also hit four home runs in a game. But um, those were the only two guys that had done it before Lou Gehrig did it. And I believe somewhere around the 19, early 1930s, I believe. Um, and Lou Gehrig, as far as in his career, his career numbers, he had 340 in his career. That's over 17 seasons, I believe. Um, he had a 4.47 on base percentage, which is ex- extremely high, considering that, um, you know, in those days they didn't. I don't even think on base percentage was an actual stat, and um, they, they, uh, they really didn't look at that, those kind of numbers. They just wanted players to get on base. But Lou Gehrig was obviously, you know, he was, he was like Babe Ruth. I mean, not he wasn't Babe Ruth, but he was that type of hitter where he could just do it all. Basically, he could hit for power. He could get on base. He could, and and uh, he was a threat all the time at the plate, um, and uh, uh, basically year in and year out, uh, his on base plus slugging adjusted was 179. Of course, and of course before, like I've, I've uh, explained OPS plus before, um, that's league average is 100. That's that's that means your league average of getting on base and and uh, slugging, and then. 79% above that is Lou Gehrig. So Lou Gehrig, obviously, you know, we all know he was a great power hitter, but he also got on base an awful lot. Um, and, of course, because of that, his on-base plus slugging percentage was well over, well, quite a bit over 1,000 anyway. He had 493 home runs, which, of course, if he had been able to play a few more years, he probably obviously would have gotten over the 500 homer mark. But, I mean, um, you know, Lou Gehrig had a phenomenal career and and he's one of he's probably the greatest first baseman of all time in baseball history um and although i mean there's there are a lot of other good first basemen but i don't think anyone would argue with that or at least not many people anyways 
He also had 2,721 hits, which was the Yankees' record up until very recently, of course, when Derek Jeter eclipsed um, Lou Gehrig as the all-time Yankee hit king. And, uh, and um, of course, Jeter went on to get 3,000 hits. And if it would have been interesting if Lou Gehrig never got, you know, unfortunately, Lou Gehrig, he got ALS, and it you know, obviously it derailed his career, wasn't able to be the same guy he was but if he didn't, he probably would have had over 3,000 hits, I'm sure. Um, and he actually had over 8,000 at-bats. And, of course, leading into that, I mean, you know, he was, they called him the Iron Horse for a reason. As everyone knows, you know, he had the, the most games played in a row up until Cowherkin Jr. broke the broke his, his record. But Lou Gehrig was the guy that set the record. He set the bar for everybody. Nobody have, had ever even imagined anybody playing 2,130 straight games. And um, and that's that's a great accomplishment for Lou Gehrig and for Cal Ripken, you know, to do it too. And, um, you know, uh, Lou, Lou Gehrig was a guy, he just went out there, he played, and he just, he gave it his all every single time. And, you know, in those days, in those days too, like when Ripken played, I mean, not to take anything away from Cal, because Cal was a great player in his own right too when he played a tough, tough position. Um not that first base is easy, but shortstop is is an extremely tough position. It's very demanding. Um, however, um, you know, Lou Gehrig, Lou Gehrig, he didn't have the, the back in those days. They didn't have the medical um, staff that they do today, and um, so I'm sure he had to play through a lot of injuries and stuff like that. So, but also, um, he actually played 126 games at least from 1925 when he took over for Wally Pipp. Until 1938, so he played. Um, he played at least 126 games, um, and then of course in 1939, I believe it was around July when the streak ended, and he gave his famous speech. And from 1926 to 1938, Lou Gehrig played less than 152 games in a season once. It was 149 games in 1935, and also Lou Gehrig won two MVPs, but he probably should have won a third MVP. However, they decided to go with Mickey Cochran in 1934. Um, the reason why I say Lou Gehrig should have won the MVP in 1934 was because he had won the Triple Crown in 34, and they didn't, for whatever reason, they decided to give Mickey Cochran the MVP. And, I mean, I'm not saying that Mickey Cochran, was, Mickey Cochran was a Hall of Famer as well. He was a good, he was a very good catcher. And back then, you know, catchers weren't really... Uh, they didn't really have to hit as much. I mean, I mean, obviously he did hit, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same in those days. Um, anyways, um, anyways, nineteen thirty four, of course, you know, with him winning the triple crown, this probably was. I mean, he had a lot of great seasons, but that, some of his numbers, I'm just going to give you them. He had three sixty three that year, led the league, forty nine home runs, one hundred and sixty six RBIs. He did that a lot. He Lou Gehrig would always drive in a lot of runs. I think uh, one time he actually drove in more than 180 RBIs, almost 190 sometimes. Uh, he had a 465 on base percentage, which is extremely high, um, a 1,172 OPS, and a 206 OPS plus, again, on, on base plus slugging adjusted, which is just adjusted to the entire league at that time. And um, it just shows how much above average she was in that category of on-base plus slugging. Um, and uh, 
again, Lou Gehrig, he also led the league in uh, numerous uh, numerous times. Um, he led the league four times in total bases with at least 409 total bases. So he, he I mean, you can see why his um, base plus slugging was so high. He led the league in OPS plus, which obviously was not a stat at the time, but I mean, it just, again, it shows how great he was at driving the ball and, and uh, you know, just getting on base. And he led the league in that three times, OPS plus. He led the league in on-base percentage five times, 13 seasons, with a 410 on-base percentage or higher. And that's that's pretty remarkable, especially in a time where they didn't really, they didn't really uh, think about on-base percentage because I don't even think on-base percentage was a stat back then. I mean, it might have been... Um, I think back then it was just more, you know, if if the ball if it was a bad pitch you don't swing if it was good I mean you, you if you if you like it you swing if you don't you don't you see kind of see the ball hit the ball almost to some degree anyway. Um, he also led the league in home runs three times and RBIs five times. He had 109 RBIs or more from 1926 to 1938, which is shows incredible consistency, um, considering you know that. That's basically his entire career, right there. Um, and uh, he was also, of course, in uh, 1939. Of course, he um, was diagnosed with ALS, or which later became known as Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and uh, it really derailed his career. And of course, the Yankees didn't have a, after that. The Yankees didn't have a, another. They didn't name another captain until Thurman Munson, but that was like that was until 1976. So. There was a long time between captains, but it was in honor of Lou Gehrig, and um, you know, because Lou Gehrig, there was, he was, he epitomized the role of captain so well that it was, there was really no reason to name another captain, and um, yeah. So, as far as Lou Gehrig and what he did in the postseason, I mean, uh, one thing that I did notice is that he had a win probability added, which um. Win probability added in the postseason kind of shows. It show, it's like a like if you have a positive win win probability added with Lou, which Lou Gehrig does, um, it shows how much he helped the team win. And his was two point three zero. So I mean, Lou Gehrig put up some great numbers, and you can tell. I mean, obviously I didn't see him play, but you can see just by his numbers that how great he was and how clutch he was. I mean, he had. 10 home runs in the postseason in 35 games, I mean 34 games, 35 RBIs, 87 total bases, hit 361, and a 483 on base percentage as well. It was only intentionally walked twice. Of course, you know, he, he was the guy that batted behind um, Babe Ruth as well. But, I mean, he was a part of those um, Murderer's Road teams too as well. So, I mean, he did have some, he definitely had protection behind him as well. But, you know, Lou Gehrig... Obviously, he's the greatest Yankee first baseman of all time, and that's no surprise at all to anybody. I I can't imagine. And another thing, you know, Lou Gehrig, he's an he was a great defensive first baseman from everything I've heard, and um, you know, he used to play hurt all the time. Of, I mean, well, he kind of had to because back in those days, they didn't really have the medical attention that that we we didn't know as much about medical stuff as we did because it's kind of evolved throughout the years just in anything really but anyways Lou Gehrig is to me the greatest first baseman in Yankee history and base basically in baseball history um so moving on we're going to discuss Mark Teixeira 
Mark Teixeira won one World Series title with the New York Yankees, of course, in 2009. As everyone probably knows, he played eight seasons with the Yankees, was a great defensive first baseman. He won five gold gloves in his um, entire career. His career numbers, he played 6,936 games, had 409 home runs. Um, he had a 200, he had a 268 average, 1,296 RBIs, had a 126 OPS plus. So, I mean, he, he was, Mark Teixeira was good at getting on base. And, of course, when Teixeira played, as opposed to when Lou Gehrig played, you know, the, it was uh, on-base percentage was a stat. And, and it was something that people, it was post-bunny ball when Billy Bean, you know, really got into the advanced saber metrics and stuff like that. And, and I mean, on-base percentage isn't really an advanced stat. But, I mean, that's really when they started getting into on-base percentage. And Teixeira is kind of a byproduct of that um, because Teixeira took a like to take a lot of pitches. He was a very disciplined hitter. And that's not to say that Lou Gehrig wasn't because he was, but they just didn't really, they didn't really uh, measure that as much. I mean, however, you know, Mark Teixeira, Mark Teixeira was, um, he had a very good eye at the plate and that shows with his, on base percentage of 360 for his entire Yankee career. He actually also played 17 seasons with the Yankees, just like uh, Lou Gehrig did. Um, however, he did not have the numbers that Gehrig did, which, you know, I don't think anybody really does. He's not first baseman anyway. But um, anyways, Mark Teixeira led the league in home runs and RBIs once, in, and that was in 2009. And, um, of course, with the Yankees, he had 39 home runs that year and 122 RBIs. He led the league in total bases twice, 2005 with the Texas Rangers and 2009 with the Yankees. And that was, he had, in 2009, he had 344 total bases with the Yankees. He had 370 with the Rangers. And he also led the league in sacrifice flies in 2012 with the Yankees with 12. And I think that also kind of, usually, I mean, sacrifice flies leaving the league in that is not really a big stat at all, but I mean, I, to me, I think it kind of it kind of just shows the selflessness and uh, how he was willing to, especially at that age. I mean, he was getting older; he wanted to win, and the Yankees the Yankees were good in 2012. They made it to the ALCS. Of course, they you know they lost Jeter in Game One of the ALCS, um, but I mean, that they they were a team that wanted to win. They were an older team, and not only that, but you know, Teixeira himself, he he just he wanted to win, and he did whatever he could to help the team win. And and another thing about Teixeira too is that he not only was he a great defensive first baseman, but he um, he knew how to drive in runs any way he could to help the Yankees, and um, that's what he did. He also led the league in runs scored in 2010 uh, with 113. He in nine seasons, um, Mark Teixeira had 30 home runs or more. One of those seasons, though, were, was with Texas, and uh, most of the other years were with the Yankees. And in comparison, Gehrig had 10 seasons of 30-plus home runs. So Teixeira um, had bas basically had about the same. He was just one year off, but, I mean, it just kind of shows the how how good Teixeira really was. I mean, he didn't have the consistency that Gehrig did. Like, he didn't hit for as high as an average as Gehrig, Gehrig did. I mean, I think he, he did hit over 300 a few years with Texas and I think one year with the Angels um I might I'm not sure if he played a half a year with the Angels but I think it was one year but anyways he, he um he was a little more consistent to Shara in the beginning of his career 
But with the Yankees, he was definitely more of a power hitter. And um, but I mean, still, he was one of the one of the better power hitters in baseball, and really is definitely deserving to be on the list of the top five greatest Yankee first basemen's. Um, and uh, he also had three seasons, like I was just saying, he had three seasons of a three with a three hundred batting average or better. Uh, his highest batting average with the Yankees, however, was two thousand nine. Um, it was two ninety two, and uh, getting into the, some of his postseason numbers, Teixeira was. Um, he, I wouldn't really say. I mean, he had some clutch moments. He wasn't like the most clutch player the Yankees ever had, but I mean, he he did have some clutch moments anyway. I mean, he he did strike out a lot in the postseason and make some outs and stuff like that. But I mean, postseason is hard, especially when the pitchers are the pitchers really like they bear down on you and. In the postseason, sometimes, especially when you're a high-paid free agent nowadays, anyway, um, you know that they're uh, and and you're expected to drive in runs. Teams know they they know they'll, they're they're going to single out on Mark Teixeira and stuff like that, and and it's going to have to depend on other guys sometimes. However, I'm not trying to disqualify any what anyone else has done either. Mark Teixeira was definitely not as clutch as uh, Lou Gehrig or. Um, even Tina Martinez for that matter either um anyways getting to, into his postseason numbers Mark Teixeira played 40 games in the postseason not all of those of course were with the Yankees he played some with the Angels I believe and he also played some postseason games might have I think he may have played some with Texas as well he had 34 hits in 40 postseason games he had three home runs 14 RBIs and had hit a, for a 222 average and he had a 339 on base percentage. So although he didn't have the best batting average, he he did have a pretty decent on base percentage, I guess. And some of the big hits, of course, he had that walk off home run in 2009 off Jose Maharis, the lefty. He um, he was hitting it from the right side of the plate, which is another thing about Teixeira. It's probably I don't think I can think of a better Yankee switch hitter, switch hitting first baseman. Um, they probably haven't had a whole lot of Yankees switch hitting first baseman. I mean, you know, they've probably had a few, but not as many. And he's probably the best one that they've had as a switch hitter. Um, but anyways, um, so he did have that walk-off home run in the American League Division Series against the Twins in 09, which was a big, which was a big clutch hit for him, and obviously for the Yankees as well, of course. And he also had a go-ahead home run the very next year in 2010 against those same Twins off of Jesse Crane, right-handed reliever. And uh, that was another big hit that he had. As far as big hits, those were the two biggest hits, I think, of his postseason career. Um, I believe in his last season, he had a grand slam at Yankee Stadium. Uh, it was a walk-off grand slam against the Red Sox. I think that was his last game at Yankee Stadium or his last game at Yankee Stadium against the Red Sox. I'm, I'm not positive on that. But, um, yeah, so Mark Deschera was a great – I would say he was a very, very good Yankee I wouldn't. I'm not so sure. I would say he's a Hall of Famer, but he's definitely borderline Hall of Famer. I would say he's probably not a Hall of Famer though. But um, but I mean, anyways, Mark Teixeira is definitely on this list anyway of the top five Yankee first baseman. Moving on, we're going to talk about Bill Scourin. Bill Scourin was nicknamed the Moose, and he got that nickname from his grandfather, who used to call him Mussolini. And the nickname just kind of stuck, and they ended it ended up becoming shortened uh, to Moose. And they nicknamed I think his grandfather nicknamed him Mussolini, you know, after the Italian dictator. Um, 
because of the because I guess the way his haircut was, he had a buzz cut, and I guess it he just kind of looked like uh, Mussolini to him. So that's how he that's how he caught that's how he got the name Moose. Anyways, uh, some of his career numbers: uh, Moose Gowan, who played fourteen seasons. Not all of them were with the Yankees. He played some. I think he played one or two seasons with the Dodgers and a few seasons with the White Sox. Um, in his career, though, he had 5,547 at-bats. He had 1,568 hits. He had 211 home runs, a 282 batting average, 888 RBIs. He had a 332 on-base percentage and 119 on-base plus slugging adjusted. So, I mean, Muscarin had a he had a very good career. Definitely not as not like the career that you know. Maybe not even the career that Teixeira had. I mean, in comparison to Teixeira, uh, I, w- I would say he's probably Teixeira was probably had a better career. But I mean, if you look and get into some of the postseason numbers, things are a little bit different. And it was uh, he also had four seasons with twenty three or more home runs, Muscarin, um, and the most home runs that Muscarin ever hit was twenty eight in a season. He had six seasons that he hit two nine two ninety eight. For a batting average of 298 or higher with the Yankees. And uh he also hit 340 in 87 games. It was actually one of his one of his first uh, I think it was his first year in the big leagues, um, 1954. He was only 23 years old. So I mean uh so Moose, I mean he played at the uh, Moose Garan played at a time too when Yankee Stadium was not the dimensions were they were similar still, but there were Left center and right center were still a lot deeper, and uh, this is when left center especially was like I think it was 495 to deep left center in the gap, and I th- believe this was at the time when they had the um, the monuments, the three monuments in the in center field. So I mean, for him to hit it out of the ballpark, he would have had to pull it out right out down the line, kind of like the pesky pull at Fenway. Um, so I mean, he. <laughs> Uh, he must have really had to belt some balls out of there. Um, obviously, just pulled him right down the line most of the time. Um, however, still, I mean, Muscarin was seems to be uh, he seemed to be more of a power hitter, and you know, he definitely he could definitely hit. I mean, he wasn't quite the contact hitter, maybe that that uh, Lou Gehrig was, but I mean, I don't really think anybody hit like Gehrig, especially first baseman, because um, Gehrig was definitely one of a kind. However, Muscarin, I mean, I, I did not realize how how good of a player he was. Not that I didn't think he wasn't good, but I just didn't realize how good he was. Um, and again, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but Muscarin was a right-handed hitter too. And that's another thing. I don't think I can... I'm not, too, not so sure I know of another right-handed Yankee first baseman better than Muscarin. If you can think of one, just by all means, feel free to tweet me at historic nyy on twitter or comment on facebook or even on instagram at historic pinstripes um and yeah so scalrin played nine seasons with the new york yankees he made it to six all-star games so i just figured that's kind of kind of interesting because i mean it kind of shows how good he was in comparison with all the other first basemen of that era um he was obviously one of the better first basemen um and he had he was third in total bases in 1960 and he had 284 total bases that year. He led the league with the least amount of errors in 1960 as well. And he finished uh, fourth 
three times. So I mean, just that alone kind of shows how, how, how like how good he was defensively. You know, he he kind of kept the errors down to a minimum, and you know that's kind of what you want as a fielder, like or as a manager, you want your players not to give up errors. Obviously, I mean it sounds kind of like common sense, but I mean still, it's easier said than done. Um, because I mean, you know, it's a major, it's a major league game and the other team, you know, they're filled with major leaguers. They're going to try to get you, get you, they're going to try to get hits and get it by you. And they're, you know, they're hitting the ball hard. So, I mean, uh, Bruce Garland was a very, I mean, he was obviously a very, very good fielder. Um, and maybe not quite as good as Mark Teixeira, but then again, I'm not so sure. Cause I don't really know. I didn't really see the guy actually play. It's a little bit different sometimes seeing the guy play and then just going back and looking at footage of a, of a guy play or researching the guy. Um, anyways, moving on to Moose Garman's postseason career. I mean, Moose Garman, um, I, I've heard that he was clutch, but looking at his numbers, I, re- I realized that he was a really, really clutch player. He had a lot of clutch hits. Um, he actually hit 375 in all seven games in the World Series in 1960. And he hit 353 the next year in all five games in the 1961 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. And also in that same year, he had a 450 on base percentage um, in that World Series, I mean. Um, so, I mean, the guy was as clutch as can be in the postseason. He won five World Series titles. He actually won four World Series titles with the Yankees. The fifth one he won with the Dodgers against the Yankees in 63. Um, and in that World Series, actually, um, he played four games, he hit 385, had a 429 on base percentage, and he had five hits in three games. Um, so, I mean, clearly the Yankees probably should have kept him, but I mean, I, I'm not, I guess they just, I think at the time they had Joe Pepitone, and I believe that was around the time when Joe Pepitone came up, or maybe it was Johnny Blanchard, maybe they wanted to give him a chance, but I think Joe Pepitone was also up around that time, and maybe they just decided to let Luce Garman go because he was getting older. I'm not so sure, though. But that's just a guess. Anyways, his career numbers, um, he had played in 39 postseason games. You know, obviously the, he won a lot of World Series with the Yankees. He played at just the right time um, in Yankees history. Uh, he had 133 at-bats. He had 293 in 39 games in the postseason. He had a 326 on-base percentage. And again, this is at a time where, you know, the, the they didn't really, like I said before, they didn't really – concentrate as much on getting on base so much I mean they 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 did they did want players not to swing at bad pitches and stuff like that but that was just so that they, they wanted them to swing at the good pitches and get a hit and just get on base any way they could and he had 69 total bases in, in his entire postseason career and he only had 26 strikeouts he only struck out 26 times in 39 games um, in the postseason and that's pretty remarkable to me I mean because, I mean, nowadays players strike out a lot. And Muscarin, I mean, that's for a guy that was kind of a power hitter, I guess. I mean, uh, he didn't really strike out as much. Like, like even even a guy like Teixeira even doesn't really strike out as, as much as maybe a guy like Judge or Adam Dunn, if you remember him, who struck out a ton. So, I mean, anyways, Muscarin really didn't, he kept the strikeouts at least to a minimum. I mean, maybe in those days that was a lot of strikeouts, but it was probably not. Um, but anyways, 
He had hit eight home runs in 39 games in the postseason and 29 RBIs. So clearly, Moose Garman was able to slow the game down in the postseason when the games meant the most. And he was definitely a clutch hitter and definitely in the top five Yankees of all time rankings. Um, but anyways, moving on to Don Mattingly. Donnie Baseball, or he was also called the Hitman. Don Mattingly is my own personal favorite. He's, he's, he's actually was my favorite Yankee of all time. Um, some of the reasons why Don Mattingly was my favorite was because I just liked the way he played. I don't really remember him so much when he was really good from 1984 to 1989 um, because I was very young then, so I didn't really re- I just don't remember seeing him play as much when he was really, really good. However, Donnie Baseball, during that period, he was a great player and you know obviously I'd heard a lot about him and um or I remember hearing a lot about him anyway and also just seeing Don Mattingly play as he got older playing through the injuries and and seeing how he played hard every single day he always wanted to be in the lineup even if he was hurt and um just seeing him out there just uh playing baseball he was a Don Mattingly was one of those uh players that you wanted to be like because he he had um, a very likable quality about him, and he was just—he played hard, and you could see that about him. That he played hard despite all the injuries. He still wanted to be out there helping the team win the games, and um, and you know they, the Yankees didn't have the best teams back then. You know, obviously George Steinbrenner, and like I think it was 1990 or 89, he was suspended. You know, so the Yankees kind of went through a rebuilding phase, and you know Mattingly wasn't the same player. So they, they kind of had to, I guess, um, they had to do something in a way to to kind of restock the farm system. And Mattingly was really good with a lot of those young players that came up, obviously Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada. Um, I think Posada came along a little bit later, but I mean, obviously, I'm sure he's, they met, of course, in the minor leagues and spring training and stuff like that. And uh, there's a lot of those guys... Um, and a lot of those guys talk talk very well of Mattingly, like um, like even Jeter has Mattingly as his uh, manager with the Marlins, and I think that's that's no coincidence. You know, I think Jeter's actually talked a lot about how much he, um, how much he, I'm sure he looked up to Don Mattingly a lot, and um, even Bernie Williams when Bernie Williams first started, Bernie Williams started around the 1990 1991 season, I think was his first year, and it took him a while to get to get going I mean if George Steinbrenner was still if he was still able to that he actually wanted to trade Bernie I think it was around the 93 season or so and George George Michael was trying tried his best not to and it was obviously it was really good that he did not trade Bernie but Bernie just wasn't wasn't moving along as fast I mean he wasn't becoming the player that they thought he would be fast enough for George Steinbrenner so he wanted him out but they hung on to him. They got George to keep him in there. And, uh, you know, Bernie Williams really paid off. Bernie Williams became a very, very good baseball player. I believe, too, I think I've heard, um, like, back in, like, the early 90s, like, 91 or 90, 1990 or 1991, when Mel Hall was there, if you remember him. he was I think he was a right fielder or a corner outfielder anyway. And I believe he gave Bernie a hard time in the clubhouse. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think that Don Mattingly actually spoke up for Bernie and uh, – you know, because I guess Bernie was kind of a sensitive guy, or not really sensitive, but just, just you know, he just kind of helped Bernie out, showed him the ropes, and got guys to stop getting on him so much or whatever. So, anyways, uh, just all that is part of the reason why Dom Mattingly is one of my favorite 
is my favorite baseball player of all time. And anyways, Don Mattingly in his career, he had 7,003 at-bats in a 14-year career. He had 2,153 hits, 222 home runs. So he had a few more home runs in his career still than uh, Bruce Gowrin. I believe they played about the same uh, the same amount of years. Um, however, Don Mattingly also had a higher batting average. And of course, from 1984 to 89, those years he was just the best first baseman in all of baseball, maybe even the best player in baseball. So, I mean, he, he's still to have a 307 average and have, I would say, like five years 1990 to 1995 or so, um, to 1995, he 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 wasn't the same player he was, and to still maintain some kind of consistency with all those injuries that he had, I mean, and getting older, is still pretty remarkable. I mean, uh, I guess at the same time it shows how good he was when he was younger as well. Um, Moving on, um, also his on-base percentage for his career was 358, which is a very good. Battingly always had a very good eye. He was very disciplined. Um, he was a great hitter. Uh, he could hit the ball to right and shoot the ball to left. Um, he had an OPS plus of 127, which is uh, well above average. Um, and then from 1984 to 89, like I was saying, you know, he was the best first baseman in all of baseball, probably the best player in baseball. He hit at least... 303 every year in those years of 84 to 89. His batting title in 1984, he hit 343. In 1985, he had 35 home runs, led the league in RBIs uh, with 145 RBIs. He only struck out that year 41 times, which by today's standards is amazing, basically. Um, he, he had an on-base plus slugging adjusted of 156, so it was well above average compared to players of that of that year. Um, he also had 370 total bases in that season and 15 sacrifice flies, and both of those actually led the league too, um, which I mean I think is pretty good. Like if you're if you're you can win the MVP and you had lead the league in sacrifice flies, it just shows, you know, Don Mattingly obviously with the 145 RBIs, you know, he smelled RBIs. If he saw a guy on, if there was a guy on third base, he was gonna knock him in any way he could, and just to get, to just even if you got the sacrifice fly, just to have that mentality where you just wanted to get that drive that runner in any way you could. I mean that shows tells you all you need to know about Don Mattingly. Um, so, anyways, he was just a very much a team first player. He led the league twice in hits. 1984, 1986, also 1986, actually, I believe it was 86. Um, he almost won the batting title that year, but Wade Boggs beat him out, and there's, that's kind of the year where people, um, you know, Wade Boggs, uh, I believe he pulled himself out of the lineup because he knew that Mattingly was going to pass him up if he played and he didn't get a hit or something, so he just pulled himself out of the lineup to make sure he won the batting title. However, I mean, he was second that year, in, at least sec unless he was second that year in the batting title. I mean, he probably could have won, but I mean, uh, it's just what it could have, should have, I guess. Anyways, he led the league. Like I said, he led the league twice in hits, 84 and 86. He had 238 hits in 86, 207 in 1984. And 84 was basically his breakout year because he didn't really have a Mattingly moving a little bit further back. Uh, Mattingly didn't really have a rookie season because when he first came up, there were a lot of first basemen. I think they said there was about seven first basemen. Uh, Steve Balboni was one. Um, 
I can't think of the uh, Don Baylor. There's there's quite a few different guys that they had. Um, he also led the league in doubles three times from 1984 to 86. He had 53, which was his career high in 1986. And then and in 1986, that was one of his one of his best years as well. He actually hit 352 that year, 31 home runs, 113 RBIs. He had a 394 on base percentage. He had a 161 on base plus slugging adjusted, which is extremely good. And then he had the 388 total total bases as well. And also that year in 1986, he was second in MVP. Uh, he finished second to another Boston Red Sox that year, who also won the Cy Young as well, Roger Clemens. Um, so I mean, Don Mattingly was just phenomenal. I mean, just to to just to win, just think to win. An MVP two years in a row. That's that's just like that. That's amazing. Like there's not many guys that have done that. I think Yogi did it once, fifty four and fifty five. Um, I believe Frank Thomas might have done it once. Ken Griffey might have done it once. But I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot of guys who have done that to win back to back MVPs. That's that's pretty remarkable. However, you know he did come up a little bit short. Um, but it just shows how good he was. Uh, he also had 23 or more home runs in those years from 1984 to 89. Um, and he was a nine-time Gold Glove winner. He w- actually won four Gold Gloves after uh, ni- from 1991 to 95, which was obviously after his prime years because, you know, and those were the years that he was, he was at least from at least in the early part of those years, like 91 to 94, I guess, or 93, he was... He had been struggling, struggling with injuries, and and he still played a Gold Glove level first base, and um, you know, so he was always one of the best first basemen in baseball. His worst year was definitely 1990. Um, th- that year, I mean, he didn't even play more than 102 games. He only hit 256 with five home runs and 42 RBIs, and the Yankees were in last place that year. Which actually, that's the last year, and it might be the only year ever that they were in last place. But I'm not positive on that. Um, they might have had a few years around before George Steinbrenner uh, bought the team in '71 or so. Um, that they, they might have a, had a few years in the late '60s that they might have been in last. But I'm not so sure they were in last place back then. Um, anyways, so after that '91, like I said before, the Yankees were they were a young team. Uh, Mattingly kind of helped a lot of those young guys develop and. He helped the Yankees and the even the Yankee fans just kind of get through the times where they weren't that great and gave them something to cheer for anyway at least and and uh you know he just at least just went out there to seeing him give it his all and even though the Yankees weren't that weren't as good and uh they really probably weren't that good either but I mean they 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 just gave it their all and they they worked as hard as they could to 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 win and even if it didn't work out. I mean, at least they give it their best. But eventually, they got better and better. Ninety-three, the Yankees started to uh, spend a little bit more money. Um, Paul O'Neill, I believe, came. He got traded to the Yankees. I can't remember what year. I think it was like ninety, off season of ninety. It was the year after ninety-two, before ninety-three. Paul O'Neill was traded from the Reds to the Yankees for Roberto Kelly. Um, they had also signed Wade Boggs that year, and I think they signed Mike Stanley. But there was a couple other guys too. Oh, Jimmy Key, I think, was another guy. I think he came around that year. Maybe it was the year after. I'm not positive. But I mean, they started making some more moves, and because you know they 
they had they were starting to get a nucleus. I mean, they had Bernie Williams there, uh, Sterling Hitchcock was there. Who really Sterling Hitchcock didn't really become uh, one of the guys, but you know they also had Andy Pettit in the farm system. They had Derek Jeter. They had Posada. So the core four was down there, and um, you know Bernie Williams was of course getting better and better and better every year, and uh, you know a couple of years away, Bernie Williams would be one of the best center fielders in baseball. Uh, anyways, moving on, like I, I just kind of wanted to mention that because, you know, Don Manningly, the one thing he had never done up until 1994 is he had never made the postseason. Of course, 1994 was another tough year for baseball, really, not just the Yankees. I mean, I guess it wasn't really a tough year for the Yankees because that was the best year the Yankees had since, like, 1985, I guess. Um, the Yankees were in first place when the strike happened, and, uh, you know, it was the first time the Yankees were really – looking toward October in a very long time. And especially for Don Mattingly, who had never played in the postseason, um, you know, he, he, it, was, it was tough. I'm sure it was tough for him uh, to not get there. However, he did get there in 1995, of course. And they faced the Seattle Mariners, and he played all five games, of course, first base. Uh, you know, he had a big September. And Paul O'Neill had a leg kick. Um, and I guess Don Mattingly kind of picked up on it around September of 95, or maybe it was a little before, but he said that that really helped him uh, find some of his power back, and that's why he kind of, he had a much better month in September, and, you know, even October, too, he started to find his power again, and he said that was the one thing he kind of regretted is that he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't use the leg kick a little sooner in his, in his uh, career as he got older, but anyways, he played five games in the postseason, and he was great. He had a he had a 417 batting average that year, um, a 440 on base percentage, a 1148 on base plus slugging um, percentage. Uh, he had 17 total bases in five games, 24 at bats, 10 hits, four doubles, a home run, six RBIs, and he only struck out five times as well. He was four for five in game four, in, um, in I believe that was in Seattle. Two doubles that game and two RBIs. So I mean, Don Manley, he was he was getting on base, and he was driving in runs. He was basically like the guy that the, that he was early in his career. Um, he was three for six in Game Two, um, and that was in New York. That's actually where he hit the big home run, and that's when the the crowd went crazy. Like even today, when I look back at the video highlights of that Don Manley home run, and I think most Yankee fans probably get the same. Like you, you I I still get goosebumps just watching. Don Mattingly hit a home run over the fence and the crowd going crazy, especially during the 1990, 91, 92 seasons, not even 93 too, when they were getting better and better and better. And, you know, he was their guy in the 80s when he was really, really good. And, you know, just so, I mean, just seeing him get there, seeing him hit the home run, seeing him perform like he did, and, you know, he really stepped up for the Yankees. And actually, if the Yankees had gotten to the – ALCS, if it wasn't for, you know, Griffey and Edgar Martinez and all the guys that the uh, Mariners had, Randy Johnson, you know, they they probably could have gone a long way, but, I mean, they just came short. Mariners had a really, really good team that year, too, so, I mean, it is what it is. But, anyways, also in game one of that that uh, same series, he was two for four as well. So, I mean, he had three multi-hit games in that same series, and... uh he had three doubles and a home run. I mean, uh, Don Mattingly was just one of the best best players in Yankees history, in my opinion, anyway. Of course, I'm a little bit biased because, you know, I got to see Don Mattingly play, 
and um, he was obviously my favorite player, so I could probably talk about him for quite a while because he was my favorite player. Anyways, uh, moving on, Tino Martinez is another guy. Uh, Tino Martinez had a, yeah, I think he, I believe Tino had a 17-year career. Uh, he had hit 271 in his career. He had a th- 339 home runs in his career too. Um, so Tino was more of a kind of more of a power type of guy. I mean, he he could get on he got on base um, any way he could, but I mean, he was mostly a power guy. Of course, he was a left-handed hitter, which helped having Yankee Stadium, the right field porch. He had a thousand two hundred and seventy-one RBIs. He had a three forty-four on base percentage and a hundred and twelve OPS plus. Um, so he was above league average with that. Um, and he had a thousand nine hundred and twenty-five hits in his seventeen-year career, as well. And another thing about Tino too is even though he was kind of a little bit more of a power guy, he never struck out more than ninety-one times in one season, which is pretty good. Um. Just considering the era that he played in, the steroid era, um, better his better years were probably before the steroid era and just kind of in the beginning of the steroid era, depending on when you feel the steroid era was, because there was kind of some debate on that. Um, but you know, Tino Martinez was a very good baseball player. He was a great defender too. I believe he won at least one Gold Glove, but I'm not positive on that. Um, his best year was definitely 1997. He had 296 that year, had 44 home runs. Uh, he had 141 RBIs, only struck out 75 times that year as well. His on-base percentage was 371, and he had an OPS plus of 143, which is well above average. Um, so he, he got on base quite a bit, obviously with the home runs, 44. I mean, he was he was slugging, and, and he really stepped up, especially because Dino Martinez was the guy that the Yankees – Got to replace Don Mattingly, of course, um, and you know, because Mattingly was getting tired of uh, you know being away from his family, he decided to kind of hang it up in '97. Although he stopped playing after '95, after that playoff run, um, and then uh, that's when the Yankees went out and traded for Dino Martinez in the offseason of '95. Uh, I believe uh, Sterling Hitchcock was part of that trade. Um, and they, I think they also got Jeff Nelson in that trade as well, um, which so kind of worked out very good for the Yankees. Anyways, uh, Tito Martinez was a two-time All-Star. Obviously, 1997 was one of those years he was an All-Star. He actually won the Home Run Derby in 1997 as well. I believe he was the first Yankee to win the Home Run Derby as well. Um, and he also uh, he had nine seasons of 20 or more home runs. 2001 was another probably his last really really good year. Um, actually, I would say it was, was definitely his last really good year. Um, he had 280 that year. He had 34 home runs, 113 RBIs. He had an OPS plus of 114, and a, and he had 295 total bases in 154 games. So Tito played a lot of games that year. He only struck out 89 times as well in the, that same season, and um. You know, it's, I feel like it's a pretty – I mean, Tino was a very disciplined hitter, and that's probably why he didn't strike out as much, I guess. I mean, he did strike out a lot compared to other players, I guess. Um, but, I mean, definitely not as much as some players today anyway. So, uh, as far as Tino – what Tino did in the postseason anyway, Tino was a clutch hitter. I mean, he wasn't, like, the most clutch hitter the Yankees have ever had. I'm not so sure – I don't know if I would put him – 
Moose Gowan, I think, probably might have been even, even more clutch. However, Tino did play a lot of games in the postseason, so maybe it was about the same between Tino and Moose. Because um, you got to remember, too, Tino Martinez had played more rounds, or there was more rounds in the playoffs with Tino Martinez. So Tino Martinez had to play a lot more games than Moose Gowan, even though the Gowan was in the playoffs every year as well with the Yankees. They just didn't, they only had the World Series. However, um, Tino Martinez, he played 99 games in the postseason. He had nine home runs, 38 RBIs. He had a 233 average. Um, and he had 72 strikeouts, 41 walks, and 125 total bases. So, I mean, it definitely shows that he, he definitely used his power. And, um, you know, of course, the pitchers, like I said before, in the postseason, every pitch means that much more in the postseason. And uh, actually, in the World Series, Tino Martinez, uh, that's when it was at his best. And usually sometimes... The bigger the moment and things just start speeding up for the players more and more and it's just harder for them to come through. But obviously Tino, you know, he really stepped up. I mean, because the pitching is it's harder to hit in the postseason because the pitching the pitching has to be better. Um, anyways, the batting his batting average in, in his entire World Series career, he had a two sixty eight batting average. He had a 268 batting average, a 355 on base percentage. And he also had three home runs in the World Series as well. Um, the three home runs uh, came in 1998, 2001, and 1999. Uh, the 1998 home run was probably his biggest World Series home run. Um, he, I believe 2001, he also had a big home run too. But I would say 98, he had a big one. Um, he, the base, he had the bases loaded against the San Diego Padres. I can't remember what game it was, but it was in in New York and they say that that was like the loudest they had ever heard the stadium people have people had ever heard the stadium the crowd I mean so I mean at least that's what I've heard it um from what some people have said anyway uh so I mean uh he had he had come through with some big spots for the Yankees and he had obviously a 355 on base percentage so I mean like I said Tino was a very disciplined hitter um he had a 14 he had 14 RBIs and played in 25 World Series games 82 at-bats, and helped the Yankees to win four World Series titles. Um, and he even came back his last year in the big leagues and played in 2005 as well. Um, and like I said, Tino was a he was a very good defensive first baseman. Um, and I, uh, I definitely think that Tino was worthy of being in this top five discussion for sure. Tino was one of the best first basemen the Yankees have had, in my opinion anyway. And let's discuss one more Yankee first baseman, Chris Chambliss. Chris Chambliss played 17 seasons with uh, in baseball. Seven seasons were, were, were with the Yankees. And in his career, he had 279, had 185 home runs, 972 RBIs. He had 40 stolen bases, a 334 on-base percentage, and 109 OPS+, plus, um, which is above league average. And he had 2,109 hits. And I, I believe... He played about the same same amount of time as Tino Martinez. Um, but Chris Chambliss was a left-handed hitter as well, just like Tino. And uh, when he played for the Yankees, he played in 1975 to 79. I believe he actually came up with the Cleveland Indians. That was his rookie season. That, uh, and he actually won the Rookie of the Year in 1971 with the Indians. And um, he had the most, the most strikeouts in his career that year, which was 83. So, I mean... Uh, and I think Chris Chambliss, 
it seemed like he's more was more of a contact type of a hitter. Um, obviously, with the Yankees, I, I he did get a few more home runs. I mean, he was a left-handed hitter too, so I mean, he had the right field porch, um, and that helps any left-handed hitter. Uh, the most amount of home runs he hit in a season was about 17 or 18, I think it was. Uh, one of his best seasons was probably 1976. Um, he was fifth in the MVP voting. He had 17 home runs, 96 RBIs, hit for a 293 batting average, had a 323 on base percentage. Again, you know, on base percentage still wasn't really a big stat back then. Um, uh, his OPS plus, though, was 124. And even though his on base percentage was a little bit lower, was probably you know he had 283 total bases and uh, on base plus slugging goes into OPS plus so it's, it's kind of a total of everything um, so anyways and it, you know it's also an adjusted stat to all the other all the other players on base percentage plus slugging so anyways he had also uh, that year he also had 32 doubles as well so I mean there's a lot of room in the gaps for Chris Chambliss to hit a lot of doubles and you know, Chambliss was a very good hitter. He he definitely probably, I'm sure he got overshadowed a lot by Reggie Jackson and guys like Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson and a lot of those guys. But, I mean, Chris Chambliss was a very good baseball player. He was a uh, he was an all-star once, um, and he also won a good glove as well. And, and uh, he, w- he went to the all-star game in 1976 as well, like I said. He was fifth in the MVP voting that year. Um, so he was a good fielder. Um, and he played 156 games that year in 1976 as well. Um, also, for 1975 to 1979 with the Yankees, Chris Chambliss played 150 or more games, and he actually played 162 games every single game in 1978. So, I mean, Chambliss was definitely a guy that went out there and played as much as he could, and um, especially when with Billy Martin. You know, Billy liked the platoon players um, get creative in the lineup, and for him to keep... Uh, Chris Chambliss in the in the field that many games in 1978. Although then again, of course, Billy Martin, you know, he did he did manage only half the season in 78 too. But I mean, he was the manager for at least a little while then. Um, but anyways, to earn the trust of the manager back then was a little bit different. However, um, I guess probably because he at that time Chris Chambliss was a veteran, and you know, back in those days the Yankees preferred veteran players because you know that they were usually better and or like or just you could rely more on them anyways uh in Chris Chambliss career in the postseason he helped the Yankees win two World Series titles of course in 77 and 78 uh his biggest um postseason hit was probably in the American League um championship series in 1976 in game five when he hit a walk-off home run to hit the Yankees into the World Series he was three for four that game he had three RBIs and of course the two run, and of course he had the home run uh, to win the game against the Royals to uh, put them in the World Series in 1977 against the Dodgers. And also in Game Three of that season, uh, he had a two run home run in the fourth inning of Game in, of Game Three against the Royals as well. And in Game Seven of the World Series in 1977, um, I believe it was 77 because yeah, because it was the same year that Reggie Jackson had that three-homer game. He went two for four with a home run in the second inning off of Burt Hooten. Um, obviously, he gets uh, Chambliss gets kind of overshadowed, but, you know, Chambliss was a he was obviously a clutch hitter as well. I mean, I wouldn't put Chambliss in the same category as, as Mr. October, of course, but, I mean, uh, Chambliss was, he was definitely clutch. 
Um, he actually hit 340 in his entire American League Championship Series career. Um, that's that's uh, throughout 14 games. Had two home runs, like I said, in the American League Championship Series um, in 1976. That's where the two home runs came. And he had 10, home, 10, RB, 10 RBIs in his entire American League Championship Series career as well. But his entire postseason career, he had played 30 games. So he, he was lucky enough to be in a part of a lot of playoff games. He had 281, had three home runs, 15 RBIs, and 32 hits. So, I mean, Chris Chambliss, you, you can see that he was a very cl- he was very clutch for the Yankees. He was a, a good first baseman, and the Yankees, re- they really relied on him to uh, play every single day and, and to, to do whatever he could to help the Yankees win, of course. So, anyways, we're going to move on to the top five ranking portion of the show. So, th- so the top five Yankees... First baseman of all time are Lou Gehrig, Don Mattingly, Tina Martinez, Mark Teixeira, and Moose Garwin. Um, I decided to go with Lou Gehrig, of course, you know, I, just because I think it's kind of obvious. You know, Lou Gehrig is, in my opinion, I think he's probably the best first baseman in all of baseball history. Um, and then I just went with Don Mattingly because, you know, for me, Mattingly, I'm kind of partial to him because he's my favorite player of all time, really. I mean, him and Bernie Williams, anyway. Tino Martinez is another guy. Um, decided to put him number three. I mean, you probably could interchange Mattingly and Tino Martinez, but I mean, I th- I feel like Mattingly was just such a great player from 1984 to 89. He was on his way to a Hall of Fame career, and it was just plagued by injuries. But he still maintained to maintain a batting average of over 300, and he was still pretty consistent for a guy who had been battling through injuries and and you know he was just such a clubhouse leader. He just was definitely, and like for a guy to still have all those injuries and still win four gold gloves after that, I mean, he was a nine-time gold glove winner in his career. So, I mean, I think Mattingly definitely is deserving a number two. Tino Martinez obviously had a lot of clutch hits. He was a great defensive first baseman, um, and I feel like he was probably one of the Yankees' Definitely deserves to be number three. I feel like even even him and Tino, you probably could even interchange, or even him, Tino, Mattingly, maybe. However, I still kind of prefer Mattingly in the two spot because I just feel like he was better than both Tino and Teixeira in their careers. And Mark Teixeira, too, kind of came to the Yankees toward the end of his career, whereas I think Tino came to the Yankees when he was still in the prime of his career. Teixeira was kind of, st- he was in the middle of his prime. I feel like Tino was a little bit, just kind of starting his prime. I mean, he had started his prime with the Mariners for a couple of years before that. I feel like Teixeira might have started his prime a little before that. Um, or at least maybe his prime ended a little sooner than Tino's. Um, however, either way, you know, Mark Teixeira and Tino Martinez had incredible careers. Teixeira was, of course, a great defensive first baseman as well. I mean, all three of all, really all these guys were great defensive first basemen. And even Chris Chambliss, too. Chris Chambliss, I feel like I probably... Could you could put him over Moose Garin, but I feel like Moose was just so clutch. I mean, Chambliss was clutch too, but Moose had a ton of ton of big hits. I mean, I didn't realize how clutch he was. Um, Chambliss, you know, he had a few big hits himself. Obviously, the walk off home run in '76. Um, you know, so I mean, I don't know. I just kind of got to go go with Moose Garin there, and I just yeah. So that's this week's episode of the top five Yankees first baseman of all time. Um, again, it's Lou Gehrig, Don Mattingly, Tino Martinez, Mark Teixeira, and Moose Garin. So what's your top five first baseman in Yankees history? Feel free to leave a comment 
on either Podbean or even feel free to tweet a, tweet us at historicnyy and use the hashtag historic pinstripes and you can feel free to uh, comment on his Instagram or Facebook as well. Um, also, we have an email too. You can email the show at historicpinstripes at gmail.com. And again, I just want to thank everybody for listening. And as Chris Chambliss once said, if you're not having fun in baseball, you miss the point of everything. And as always, go Yankees! (laughs) 